Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us this evening. My name is Tanya Kushakjian. I'm the Director of Public Policy for the Hindu American Foundation. And thank you for joining us for a brief 30-minute phone conversation with Dr. Michael Rubin, who is the Resident Scholar for Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East. A former Pentagon official, Dr. Rubin has lived in post-revolutionary Iran, Yemen, and both pre- and post-war Iraq. He has also spent time with the Taliban before 9-11. For more than a decade, he taught classes at sea about the Horn of Africa and Middle East conflicts, culture, and terrorism to deployed U.S. Navy and Marine units. Dr. Rubin is the author, co-author, and co-editor of several books exploring diplomacy, Iranian history, Arab culture, Kurdish studies, and Shiite politics. He holds a PhD and an MA in history from Yale University, University, where he also obtained a BS in biology. Uh, and interviewing Dr. Rubin tonight is Samil, Samir Kalra, our HAF Managing Director based in the Bay Area of California. He holds a JD from Santa Clara University School of Law and leads the foundation's human rights and public policy advocacy efforts. He has led human rights fact-finding missions and served as a panelist in multiple congressional briefings and authored formal testimony for congressional hearings on human rights, foreign policy, hate crimes, and immigration. He's also the author of HAF's uh, Hindu Human Rights Reports, which I encourage you to view. So before, uh, as we get started, I'll turn it over to Samir uh, for our conversation. Samir. Great. Thank you so much, Tanyal. And uh, good evening to everyone. Namaste and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, welcome, Dr. Rubin. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Samir. Great. Dr. Rubin, you've written um, a considerable amount about Pakistan recently, and I want to just start with uh, some news that came out last Friday about something that's called the Financial Action Task Force, and they uh, designated Pakistan to its gray list um, for the second year in a row. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what this uh, task force is all about um, and what its significance is? Well, the Financial Action Task Force was founded a little bit more than two decades ago. It's the international community's chief multilateral apparatus to combat money laundering, and especially after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, terror finance as well. It meets regularly to assess each country's culpability and identifies problems, and then it assesses those countries' um, efforts and abilities to address the problems which have been identified. So you have a blacklist, you have a gray list, and then you have, um, I guess, by default, a white list. And Pakistan has found itself on the, on the gray list with countries like Burma and the Cayman Islands and uh, Syria and Yemen as countries which are of concern for both money laundering and counterterrorism concerns. The only countries on the blacklist right now are actually North Korea and Iran, but there's been a lot of speculation that Pakistan might find itself in the, those countries' company quite soon. Great. And can you actually tell us why uh, Pakistan hasn't been on the black isn't on the blacklist or wasn't listed on the blacklist this past year? What I guess was the distinguishing factor? Did the task force find that they made any progress specifically toward countering uh, financing of terrorism and money laundering? I, I think it was around 2019 that the um, Financial Action Task Force identified 40 um, items that Pakistan needed to address. 
And when they met last year, they found that Pakistan had moved forward on two of those. So they moved forward on two of them. They hadn't moved forward on 38 of the problems. But diplomats being diplomats will say, well, at least that's forward progress. We'll give Pakistan one more time. If you ask my opinion of what's going on behind the scenes, though, I think basically China is um, wielding its influence to sort of protect Pakistan as its latest proxy to prevent this blacklist uh, designation that most countries and most observers believe that Pakistan deserves for failing to make some of the arrests they promised to, for failing to make some of the reforms they promised to, and then for the few reforms they have made, doing it kicking and screaming uh, without necessarily the buy-in of the ISI. I mean, with that uh, role that China is playing on the task force, is it more of a paper tiger? Is there still really any way to ensure or influence good behavior by Pakistan or quote unquote better, more progress? Um, are we going to just see more of the same and it'll just sit in this gray zone without actually taking much action and without having much implementation from or further enforcement from the task force? Look, I mean, I'm as frustrated as you are that we tend to look at some of these countries subjectively rather than objectively um, when assessing the criteria. But unlike the Human Rights Council, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, actually has some meat to it because by being on the gray list, you lose a lot of opportunities for international finance, for loans uh, and for assistance. And so there's been some estimates that I've read in, I think, the Economic Times of India that because Pakistan remains on the gray list, it's actually lost out on about $38 billion. And that's money which, um, given the economic trajectory of Pakistan, given um, the disappointment of the um, CPEC corridor, um, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, given the mismanagement and corruption of Imran Khan, that's money which Pakistan desperately needs and which it, it doesn't have now because it's failed to take these reforms. It's put uh, ideology and a commitment to terrorism above actually um, joining a transparent community of nations. And you drew a, a comparison and a contrast there between the task force and uh, the Human Rights Council within the United Nations. Would you say that there are other similar mechanisms internationally similar to the task force that could have, you know, positive, um, you know, impact on Pakistan's behavior or conversely can serve to punish um, uh, Pakistan punitively when they don't take uh, concrete action towards countering terrorism and their support for financing it or providing logistical support for it? Well, I wouldn't necessarily speculate on some of the international tools. I tend to spend my time focusing in Washington, but there doesn't seem to be any reason why Pakistan deserves to be a major non-NATO ally um, and to receive the benefits, for example, of that sort of status within the US diplomatic community. Um, and at the same time, if we were to look at this objectively rather than subjectively, I think we need to at least raise the, um, raise the concern about and, and the possibility about whether Pakistan deserves to be on the state sponsor of terrorism list. Uh, traditionally, Pakistan complains that the United States treats them like a fair weather friend. And indeed, I mean, frankly, we do, especially when it comes to some of the nuclear sanctions, um, the Glenn Amendment, the Pressler Amendment and the Symington Amendment over the years. But 
as concerning as Pakistan's nuclear activities are its clear sponsorship of terrorism. And what Americans shouldn't forget is that when it comes to Pakistan, um, Pakistani terrorism doesn't just kill Indians. It's also killed American citizens, for example, during the Mumbai attacks. Um, we should treat terrorism, regardless of it, who, who it kills, uh, with equal severity. But in this case, Pakistan still has some explaining to do, and that doesn't even go into um, the whole issue of what Pakistan has done uh, to kill American forces inside Afghanistan who are there at the invitation of the Afghan government. I'm reminded, if I may, um, Samir, just I hadn't thought about this ahead of time, but there is a lawsuit which um, family members of those killed by Iranian-sponsored terrorism inside Iraq have launched. It's before the federal district court. Um, it's Holiday versus the the case is called Holiday versus the Islamic Republic of Iran. It has about 600 plaintiffs assigned to it, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we saw some sort of court case like that launched against Pakistan and the ISI for the terrorism which they've conducted against Americans uh, in the region. And you bring up a great point there, um, both in terms of a broader context that I think you know we have to focus on America and what the tools that we have at our disposal here. Um, but you know when you when you talk about the terror designation. What is the hesitancy that's uh, prevented U.S. officials from going to that point of designated Pakistan as a state sponsor of terrorism? Has it been this view that, well, we know that they obviously are a big part of the problem, but we feel that we need them more and the situation could be much worse? Or how would you kind of view the, you know, you know how the administration's whether current one or previous ones have viewed Pakistan in regards to whether they deserve to be or whether they should be listed as a state sponsor of terrorism. I'd basically say there's three impediments uh, to the listing, which are bipartisan. They, they transcend administrations. One is against the backdrop of the Afghan conflict, the fact that we needed Pakistan logistically, especially because uh, consistently, and this might change with the Biden administration, um, the United States hasn't wanted to give a permit for um, much to go through the Iranian port of Chabahar, which, of course, is a much closer, um, much closer geographically. Um, the, the railroads, the highways, the lines of communication into Afghanistan than the Pakistani ports are. So one is logistically. But if the Biden administration pulls out of Afghanistan entirely, that's no longer a factor. The second issue um, is, and you could probably tell, talk more about this than I can, is the issue of this almost Pakistan lobby within the State Department that's kind of similar to the Turkey lobby that exists or in the past, the Saudi lobby that existed, um, in that people have served in Pakistan and somehow um, bend over backwards to, um, uh, to absolve them of any um, accountability for their own own behavior. And I mean, I scratch my head wondering at why we do that. I'm reminded of George Schultz, the late Secretary of State, who famously, whenever he would dispatch, dispatch a new ambassador, um, he would call him into his office, spin a globe in the office and ask him to point to his country. And God forbid they didn't point to the United States of America. Um, but the last issue, and this again overshadows all administrative thinking, uh, administration's thinking, whether it's Democrat or Republican, 
is just this fear that the, the loose nukes problem, should Pakistan become a failed state? Um, there's very few states in the world that the United States truly considers at risk of state failure. Pakistan is one of the exceptions. We, we do worry about that, and we worry about what could happen um, should some of Pakistan's nuclear material fall into the wrong hands. I want to just pick up on that last point, uh, and I've heard that argument quite a bit, um, but I mean, couldn't one argue that it's already in the hands of bad actors because of many within the ISI and the military that obviously have the keys to the nuclear arsenal and whether in higher ranks or otherwise are very sympathetic to extremist groups um, and this kind of worldview, um, an Islamist worldview that is almost already in those hands. So they could at any time, if they found strategic reasons to do so, already hand it over, provide those to bad actors or non-state actors to use those for whatever reason. Well, I, I agree with you. When I gave my three points, I was talking as an um, analyst rather than an advocate. I personally agree with you. And what frustrates me with regard to the Pakistan lobby and our deference to Pakistan on some of these issues is that it's clear that Pakistan will embraces, catalyzes, and promotes radical Islamism as a tool. The reason they do this is ever since, the, I mean, they were founded as a land for the Muslims. Uh, Jinnah died before he could really define what that was. Um, but after the loss of Bangladesh, because the Punjabis always confuse the Pakistani Punjabis always confuse themselves with Islam um, to the detriment of the and to the resentment of the other ethnic minorities in Pakistan. When Bangladesh went independent after suffering, I mean, 13 um, or actually, excuse my math, 20, 23 years of discrimination at the hands of the Pakistani government in West Pakistan, the Pakistani um, military, the ISI concluded that ethnicity could undercut, I mean, could pose an existential, existential threat. Ethnic identity could pose an existential threat to Pakistan. Therefore, they needed to promote this radical Islamism as the overwhelming identity, which would be the glue to hold uh, the Pushtun together, the Baluch together, um, the Gilgitis together, all these other groups within the country, the Sindhis and so forth. Um, the problem here is that the Pakistanis and the ISI specifically don't understand a common pattern of history, which is whenever you promote Islamism, whenever you promote Islamism, especially for export only, thinking that you're going to be immune to it internally, you're not going to suffer blowback, um, you're wrong. When, when, when we look at any country, Saudi Arabia, which promoted radical Islamism uh, with its oil money, the world is still paying the price for it. Certainly, we paid the price for that on 9-11. Pakistan only started taking the counterterrorism fight seriously, not after 9-11, but after 2003 and 2004, when they suffered terrorist attacks um, inside Saudi Arabia itself. Likewise, Syria, if you go back to documents which were confiscated in 2007, most of the suicide bombing which was going on in Iraq at the time uh, with various al-Qaeda affiliates and so forth was actually those bombers were actually passing through Syria with the connivance of the Syrian government, even though the Syrian government isn't Sunni, it's Alawi. They figured that they could do this for export only. And with the Syrian civil war, we see the backlash. Turkey also 
has been sponsoring uh, radical Islamist groups. I think Turkey is going to be to the 21st century, what Saudi Arabia was to the 20th century. And we've seen Islamic State attacks and so forth inside Turkey as they suffer blowback. I'm sorry to be long winded, but the point of this is Pakistan isn't immune to basically the patterns of history. And the more that they support these radical groups, um, the more that they support a Taliban victory in Afghanistan, the more likely it's going to be that these people, these Taliban, these radicals, these Islamists are actually going to turn on Pakistan themselves. And these elites who think that they can use this tactically and they're more clever than everyone in the world as they drink whiskey in the Islamabad club and so forth are going to be, um, I mean, the first ones strung up by their feet when the Islamists really do take over. No, absolutely. And I think you uh, kind of at the end there, you talked a little bit about what we are going to be kind of experiencing over the next couple of months with the uh, expected withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, and you've written extensively on uh, Pakistan's Taliban strategy and what a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan means. If you could actually talk a little bit about that, given that, you know, they have used that strategy uh, with the Taliban as a proxy um, as a proxy uh, war asset and how that's already affected them. But what if we're going to look kind of when that vacuum is created after the U.S. withdrawal uh, is completed September 11th is the kind of the deadline date. Uh, what do you anticipate happening there? What do you see happening um, vis-a-vis Pakistan and its role and perhaps some of the ramifications for the neighborhood and beyond? Well, a- admittedly, I'm a historian by training, which means I get paid to predict the past. Um, and my my critics would say I only get that right about 50 percent of the time. But I see two patterns going on. First of all, um, I, look, I was in Afghanistan back in 1997. It was my first trip. I was in Mazari Sharif when the Taliban attacked the city. And I was actually evacuated by Indian diplomats who came in to evacuate um, the Indians who were there as well. And uh, they dumped us across the border in Uzbekistan. Um, so thank you to to the Indian Foreign Ministry for saving my life back then. Um, at the same time, um, when we look at how the Taliban took over, um, starting in the 1990s, most of it wasn't through outright military victory. Most of it was to um, paraphrase Osama bin Laden, because everyone likes the strong horse and they had the um, perception of momentum. People simply defected. This notion that Zameh Khalilzad uh, has... And I, I haven't seen proof herein that somehow the Taliban have changed. I, I just don't see it, that somehow they become more nationalistic. Again, I don't, I don't see it. Back in 1996, when the Taliban attacked Kabul, um, people forget they attacked Kabul while they were participating in multilateral intra-Afghan dialogue to have some sort of coalition government. The fact of the matter is they only want to negotiate so long as it buys them international legitimacy but ultimately they're going to impose themselves through the end of the gun simply because they know that they can never get legitimacy through the ballot box because Afghans don't even Pashtun Afghans don't particularly care for what the Taliban has to sell. Um, And the other thing we know is this notion that we have in the United States, this extremely naive notion that somehow through our negotiations, we've gotten the Taliban commitment to decouple itself from Al Qaeda. First of all, In Washington, it's easy to think about, oh, you have two groups, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and they're going to agree to separate. But when you're actually in Afghanistan, you're talking about brother 
um, separating and denouncing brother, cousin separating and denouncing cousin, it simply isn't going to happen. It's not realistic. And the fact of the matter is we know it's not going to happen because not once, but I think at least twice now, senior leaders of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent have been um, killed under Taliban by Afghan or U.S. forces under Taliban protection inside Afghanistan. It's, it's clear they're just lying. Um, what frustrates me as we give Pakistan a clear um, a clean pass and we pretend that the Taliban is anything um, is more than just a Pakistani puppet, an ISI puppet, is this notion the United States, of course, is exhausted. Um, we've taken casualties there and so forth. But the issue we have is that 90 percent, according to U.S. intelligence analysis, which has been presented to Congress, of the explosive precursors, which have been used against U.S. forces in Afghanistan, come from one of two uh, factories inside Pakistan, fertilizer factories. And the notion that the United States can't either use diplomatic pr pressure to shut those down or use military action to shut down those two is beyond belief. I mean, simply put, I think the United States is making a strategic mistake. Pakistan's going to fall into this. At the, at the risk of going on too long, um, I do believe that once you have that al-Qaeda presence, that safe haven in Afghanistan, you're going to have blowback in Pakistan, just like we did previously when the Taliban were given, um, I think, um, a safe haven in, um, what was it, uh, North Waziristan, and then they, they marched on um, Islamabad, they occupied the Swat Valley and so forth. The other thing that strikes me is a conversation I had with a very senior Afghan official um, about 10 years ago, I guess, when it was against the backdrop of a terrorist bombing, a Taliban terrorist bombing. I think of um, the Indian embassy in Kabul, or perhaps it was the Indian consulate in Jalalabad. And the, U um, the U.S. State Department at the time had given an excuse that, oh, there's no proof that uh, the Taliban did this. There's no proof that Pakistan was behind it. And this Afghan official said to me, um, I mean, you got to be kidding me um, that the Americans are covering up for this. And if the Americans truly believe this, they don't understand um, the way things work and they don't understand counterterrorism. And I said, what do you mean we don't understand counterterrorism? And he said the only successful way to counter Pakistani terrorism is if a bomb goes off in Kabul, then a bomb should go off in Islamabad. If a bomb goes off in Jalalabad, a bomb should go off in Lahore. Um, and I said, well, then what's stopping you now? And he said, the U.S. presence is stopping us. But if the U.S. ever goes, it's going to be a completely different situation. So I wouldn't be surprised if we actually saw um, Afghan anti-Taliban fighters take their fight much more actively to Pakistan. And couldn't we, could we say the same thing for the Afghan Taliban in a way? Because I think, um, you know, the Afghan Taliban, I think, as you have rightly pointed out, they're actually probably in a better position right now than they were when they first came to power um, and have absolutely zero incentive to give any concessions or negotiate. But is there also a possibility that they could actually try to consolidate across the border? And now, the you know, the Pakistan Taliban has you know, been uh, conducting attacks within Pakistan, but there could be some larger joining of forces where the Pakistani establishment of the military and the ISI is not able to control the Afghan Taliban. I mean, this could easily, you know, work against Pakistan um, and there could be creating havoc, you know, not just in the, the tribal areas, but even into KP province proper. 
I think you're absolutely right there. It's it's a real threat. And again, um, sometimes Pakistani liberals, um, Pakistani elites ensconce themselves in a bubble. They think they understand their country um, much more than they actually do. Look, I, I've spent more time in Pakistan than I have in India. Um, I, I've gone to all the right clubs in Islamabad, but I've also walked the streets of Peshawar. And I can tell you, I probably spent more time walking the streets of Peshawar than than 99% of the Pakistani elites have. Um, I really don't understand. They, I, I don't believe they understand what's going on in their own country. And, you know, another I think, concern and something that, you know, our um, constituents and supporters are concerned about in the broader Hindu American community is what this means for India. Um, what the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan could mean and how this could impact, um, in particular, um, India's Union territory of Jammu and Kashmir, where we just saw some actually drone terror attacks in the last couple of days. Uh, but what, you know, what do you think could happen there um, with this withdrawal? You know, what is the role of India? What is the role of, you know, perhaps redirecting if Pakistan is able to successfully control Taliban fighters, some of the Mujahideen into uh, Indian Kashmir? Well, one of the things that worried me was um, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki, when she gave her statement ahead of um, President Ghani's visit to summit with Joe Biden um, on Friday, she said that the United States would continue to oppose um, all terrorism and counter all terrorism emanating from Afghanistan against um, the United States. And that specific against the United States makes me worry that there's going to be a free pass to terrorism conducted elsewhere. When I first went into uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, as the Taliban control um, called themselves, you had terror training camps, for example, for groups like Harakat al-Mujahideen, um, which were operating against Kashmir. Um, and what I worry about is that, once again, you're going to have um, sort of um, Afghanistan become the terror training um, safe zone for Pakistani-sponsored terrorist groups, which will be deployed into Kashmir at the same time as the Pakistanis feel that they can divert money um, away from some of their sponsorships in Afghanistan, they may redirect that money to um, sponsoring terrorism against India. At the same time, um, the Pakistani ISI, at least, is going to be extremely arrogant. They will say that they have defeated the United States um, that terrorism works and they're going to be cocky. And when terror sponsors get cocky, it's usually democracies that pay the price. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned a little bit about kind of the response from the administration here uh, thus far. Um, we yet don't have a an ambassador to Pakistan yet. Um, do you have any um, idea of, you know, who may be appointed in that position and you know, if you were to advise, be an advisor to that person, how would you advise them to kind of, and the broader administration, of course, um, kind of deal with this um, impending withdrawal uh, and the region and kind of just in general trying to shift the behavior of Pakistan? Big question, I know. But, um, um, you know, <laughs> if you were in that position and knowing that, that, you know, that we are on the cuspice of, you know, some really uh, turbulent times in the next several months. Um, first of all, I, I, I have no idea who might become um, the, the ambassador, I, I haven't gotten into that sort of Washington parlor game recently. Um, 
when it comes to how we should address Pakistan, there's this tendency that we want to give more carrots than sticks. And honestly, it hasn't worked. What I would argue we should say to Pakistan is not um, that if you behave, we will give you $100 million more or a billion dollars more. What I would say is if you don't behave, we are going to ensure that um, our, that we give India such a qualitative military edge that they are going to be generations ahead of you in terms of their military capability and their intelligence gathering. Um, at the same time, Pakistan feels that they don't need to listen to the United States as much because they have um, China at their back. And I would simply use that uneven relationship to embarrass the heck out of Imran Khan, who has basically um, transformed Pakistan from an independent state into a Pakistani colony, I'm sorry, a Chinese colony, uh, to embarrass him as talking about, um, for talking about combating Islamophobia on one hand, while he um, not only ignores, but actually endorses the ethnic cleansing going on against the Uyghur community in China. The fact of the matter is, if you want to um, be a Muslim and have freedom in the region, the only real place to live is in India today. And that's also something which should um, be a staple of our public diplomacy. Let's uh, let's not forget uh, Imran Khan's um, uh, rape victim blaming and shaming uh, we just saw a couple of days ago as well and add that to his list of accomplishments. Well, I mean, um, Imran Khan, in terms of gaffes and that sort of thing, is the gift, is the gift that keeps on giving uh, without getting too political in terms of Donald Trump and his um, tendency for uh, outrageous off the cuff remarks. Imran Khan sometimes can make Donald Trump look like Mother Teresa. <laughs> Uh, you know, and uh, Michael, as we kind of get to the um, uh, the end of this conversation, you know, this what it seems to be that the real crux of the problem with Pakistan that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon is this charade of a prime minister position, um, whether it's Imran Khan, whether it's um, you know anybody else in that position, you know, the Bhuttos when they were around, um, or others. I mean, really, we all know that the military establishment is really exercising power and their thinking doesn't seem to be changing or won't seem to change. So at what point, um, you know, do we actually, you know, even forgo any dealing with, you know, the quote unquote elected leadership in Pakistan um, and, you know, just not even treat them as a democracy or not even treat their elected officials um, and give them the same diplomatic, um, you know, uh, you know, formalities that any normal country would get. Well, in reality, it's the Iran problem. And while the State Department likes to pretend that it's negotiating with Iran when it talks to their diplomats, behind the scenes, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Supreme Leader control everything. Well, it's time to start thinking about the head of the ISI as being the Supreme Leader, um, the ISI as being the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and basically talking about Pakistan in the same way that we talk about Iran uh, when we at least recognize that that charade um, has that the emperor has no clothes. Um, in this case, at the very least, I would circle back to what we were saying about a debate about um, labeling Iran as a state sponsor of terror. If we want to go back to the Clinton administration, Madeleine Albright defined this notion of rogue regime as a terror sponsor, a nuclear aspirant or a nuclear power. 
in which an unelected cabal monopolizes power, um, an unelected cabal, sorry, monopolizes power. And that's exactly what we have inside Pakistan. And so it's time to start calling them what they are, a rogue state. Absolutely. And um, again, I'm going to get uh, into the prediction game, but what do you see as the odds of that actually happening with this administration? With this administration, I don't see the um, the odds are that it will happen. What I would argue is the time is now to start normalizing this in the discussion because um, it will allow th- this option is going to be inevitable. And the more we start thinking about the process of how this should work, the better. I mean, the same thing. I, I, again, I'm reminded of Turkey, where um, a decade ago I was at a conference, a Kurdish conference in Belgium, and um, people said it's ridiculous to even talk about um, this discussion of kicking Turkey out of NATO uh, because it's just completely unrealistic. And yet now it's a it's a common discussion. We need to make this notion of designating Pakistan a state state sponsor of terror a um, a, a common discussion. And look, the idea isn't to punish Pakistan. The idea is hopefully so that Pakistani liberals, Pakistanis that want to live in peace with their neighbors, Pakistanis who want to develop their own economy will recognize that the greatest loser to this state sponsorship of terror game is going to be Pakistan itself if it continues with this rogue behavior. Absolutely. And I think that's a a good note to end on, um, providing some, you know, realistic options for the future. Um, not just for U.S. policy, but also hopefully to actually bring change on the ground um, in Pakistan to, you know, what we would hope is uh, the majority of the population that wants to actually live in a better space and a, you know, a country that is not controlled by, you know, a military establishment that is, you know, promoting an Islamist worldview um, and their biggest export is terrorism to this day. So, you know, Michael, I want to thank you very much for your expertise and uh, taking the time to talk with us. Um, really appreciate um, all your insight on this, um, you know, very complex part of the world and complex um, issue. Um, so thank you once again. Thank you, Samir. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.